back. Today we're going to talk about the great willow whack. The great willow whack of Hashanah Rabba. All right, let's open up with a straight reading of the Halacha and Shulchan Aruch. And then I'm going to take you to the instructions that the Alter Rebbe brings in his Siddur. And look into that a little bit. And after we've established the practice of the willow whack, we're going to ask ourselves, what in heaven is going on here? Why are we whacking willows? Where does this come from? What is its origin? What's the deeper meaning? How's it relevant in our life today? Why would we do something like that to sweeten judgment on this day? That's the day of Oshana Rabbah that falls this year on Friday, the last day or the seventh day of Sukkot. Now, if you're just joining us now, I want to tell you that we're going to be looking at one of the strangest practices in all of Torah Judaism. On the surface, it seems entirely inexplicable. And it's like almost baffling. But stay with me, because I promise, with Hashem's help, you will leave uplifted, inspired, and in the know. And it's pretty amazing. Okay, with no further ado, the Great Willowack. What's up with that? Let's begin our journey by taking a look at the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, Orachayim, the section that deals with everyday life. This is chapter Tofresh Samachdalot. Chapter 664, it follows the laws of Lulav, and we hear about the prayers of Chol HaMoed, and this chapter of Shulchan Aruch is called Seder Yom Hoshana Rabbah, the order of the day of the great Hoshana. Hoshana has even made its way into the English language. It's uh, one of those words that curiously shows up in other faith systems too, and it is even considered to be part of everyday English vernacular for those who have a highfalutin vocabulary. It means like getting some kind of divine intervention or assistance or aid from on high. We'll soon see the word Hoshana hails from the book of Psalms, so it's biblical. But Yom Hoshana Rabbah, day of Hoshana Rabbah, is not biblical at all. But we'll get into that in a moment. Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Machaber of the Shulchan Aruch says, V'yem Shvi, on the seventh day of Sukkot, Shohu Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day, which is the great Hoshana, Nogim laharbeis b'mizmerim k'mayyamtif. 
it's customary for us to add, to augment our prayers, like on a Yom Tov. And the Shulchan Aruch talks about a variety of other customs. The Ramah weighs in here very heavily with multiple glosses about the customs that surround Hoshana Rabbah. And I don't want to focus on them because our focus is the willow whack. Chavita Sarova. The Shulchan Aruch goes on to say that this is connected to the notion that Sukkot is the time when Hashem judges the nature of hydration, what our water supply will be like. And therefore it's customary to loosen our lulav, to take off some of the lulav rings that have served to help bind the lulav together, and we are going to be encircling the bima not once, but seven times today. Then, the Shulchan Aruch says, V'neitlan arova In addition to the lulav that has hadasim myrtles and aravot willows bound to it, held together with an esrik, in addition to this, we take an arava on this day. This is milvada arava shebalulav, separate from the arava of the lulav. And the Shulchan Aruch says, no blessing is recited. So it is not the fulfillment of a mitzvah, not even a rabbinic mitzvah. Clearly, it's a custom. The Shulchan Aruch talks about the size of this arava, or at least how many leaves are necessary. Bad echad. Just... Just one leaf is good enough. Even one branch, one twig is good enough. Although that is not our custom, as you'll see in a moment. And then, in the end of Seif Dalad, the fourth section of this chapter of Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo finishes with the words, V'chovet al hakarka, we whack the ground. Oyalakli, we're on some other artifact. Pa'omayim o shalosh two or three times. The Ramah says that some say you have to actually wave it first. And he says it's customary to wave the willow and then whack it. The Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, unfortunately, does not exist on this chapter. And the reason is because there was manuscript that was lost in a fire, and unfortunately we don't have it. However, the Alter Rebbe does put instructions in his Siddur. And there, after the prayers of Hoshana, of Hoshana Rabbah, and they're fairly long, they're called the Hoshanot prayer, the Alter Rebbe says, and after reciting all these prayers, you take in hand the willow, Hey, chavitot, and you whack it five times, the karka on the ground. And he says, This is kedei in order, lematik hegvuris. That's to sweeten this Kabbalistic idea of five judgments. So their judgment comes in an array. The array is five, five levels or dimensions of judgment. The purpose of whacking this willow is to sweeten the judgment. 
And because there are five dimensions in divine judgment, we whack the Arava five times. Now it's interesting that the Alter Rebbe leaves out the notion of whacking the Kali, the artifact, and emphasizes hey chavitois bekarka, or chavotois bekarka, we whack the ground. The Alter Rebbe also doesn't say two or three times, he says we whack it five times. If one takes a look in the Rambam, the Rambam says in Hilchas Lulov, the Rambam uses similar language where he describes the size of the Aravot. And then he says, we also take this Arava, he goes through the details of the Beis HaMikdash, and he says we take this Arava and we encircle the altar with it, the, the reading table, which serves in lieu of the Mizbeach as we're going to see. But the Rambam doesn't talk about the notion of whacking this Arava. He just says you take the Arava. Okay. Now, clearly, the notion of whacking the willow five times is rooted in the teachings of Kabbalah. And it's actually found in Priyat's Chaim, which is writings of the Arizal, in what's called Shar Lulav, the Lulav portal, chapter 6. And it's also found in multiple other locations, as well as in the Siddur of the Arizal. What's interesting to note is the fact that the Alter Rebbe took the time to include or insert the mystical intention, the idea behind it. Typically, he doesn't do that. In fact, he almost never gives us the mystical or Kabbalistic background in the Siddur. He simply tells us what to do, not what to think, and not how to focus. There are a number of examples in which the Alter Rebbe does deviate from this practice and in the Sha'ar HaKoylo, the Rebbe's grandfather, Rebbe Avram David Lavut, notes, great-grandfather, he notes that, for example, when it comes to the minig of kaparot, swinging the chicken, and then having that chicken slaughtered and its meat given to the poor, on Erev Yom Kippur, the Alter Rebbe also talks about the time in which this happens, and he emphasizes the notion of chut shal chesed, that there is this ray or string theory of light, if you will. So why does the Altareb bring down that mystical idea? And the Shara Kolel says, this is because there were those who cast aspersion on that custom. There were those who maintained that it should be phased out. However, Rabbeinu Haigo, in one of the most important Geonim, speaks of this in very strident terms. And the Arizal talks about it as well. And so it seems that the Alter Rebbe felt compelled to bring the reasoning of the Arizal so as to justify and explain why we actually follow through in this fashion. And so we might say the same thing here, although the, in the 
Tziyunim in Ha'aras to the Alter Rebbe Siddur, a suggestion is made that the Alter Rebbe does not bring intentions when it comes to prayers, but he does bring intentions when it comes to customs. And that's because customs don't always have clear sources. The prayer is a prayer. The custom, what, do, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Where does it come from? And are all these details actually important? Because those are questions people might ask, that's why the Alter Rebbe includes details, mystical details. And the Shar Tziyunim of Ha'aras points out that this is the case with regard to Kaparot, as we just mentioned. It's also the case with regard to Tashlich, that stroll to a brook of running water that we do in the afternoon of Rosh Hashanah, reciting prayers and what people proverbially call casting their sins into the water. But it's really more about being at a place where there is kindness, because water represents kindness, especially when it's running. There's four special chapters of Tillam recited on the night of Yom Kippur. That's a custom, not a prayer per se. And here we have the Alter Rebbe giving us reasons. Another example is the notion of pouring wine out of our cup to get rid of the af, or divine anger, on the night of Pesach at the Seder. So the Tziyun and Vahara suggest that when it comes to customs, the Alter Rebbe feels compelled to share mystical reasons. We're going to come back to this. But first, we're going to make a big hakafa, pun intended. We're going to go for a big circle. And we're going to analyze the origins and dig deep for meanings. Starting with, who gave this day the name Yom Hoshana Rabbah? Where does it come from? What does it really mean? Why is this day observed differently than all of the other days of the festival of Sukkot? Why does it have an obsession over the Aravot? What is the deeper meaning of that focus? And finally, we'll understand why we're whacking the willows and how that can sweeten judgment. So, the journey begins. Where is the first time that we see this day set aside or made different from other days? Nowhere in the Bible. We learned together over the last two classes. We focused on the psukim, on the verses that speak about the lulav, etrog, the hadasim, and the aravot. We talked about sukkah secrets. We did not discuss the notion. We did not talk about the idea of Hoshana Rabbah at all, although we focused on the joy of Simchat Beit HaShoeva because Hoshana Rabbah, or the seventh day of Sukkot, is not identified or singled out in biblical syntax at all. The earliest documentation we have is in the Mishnah, and then in its genre, things like the Medrash. Mesechet Sukkah, Tractate Sukkah, page 42, side B. The Mishnah talks about Lulav and Arava. Now, Lulav is a code name for the four kinds. In fact, when we recite the blessing of taking the four kinds, we don't say, Asher Kedishan Tov, God who has commanded us and sanctified us, Al Natilat Arba Minim, on the taking of four kinds, we say, Al Natilat Lulav undertaking of the lulav. You might be wondering why that's the case, and it's actually a great question, but it's beyond the purview of today's class. 
there's something about the lulav on a simple level that's much more visible than everything else. The etrog fits into your hand. The hadasim and aravot are fairly short. It's the lulav that towers above. As we've discussed, that represents Torah study. And in some way, it emphasizes the supremacy of Torah study. In the words of our sages, Talmud Torah Keneget Kulam. But I digress. That's not really the point of today's class. So when the Mishnah says Lulav, it doesn't mean Lulav, it means Lulav Adasma Aravas and Esrik, the four kinds. But then the Mishnah says Arava, Lulav and Arava. So the Lulav and Arava, which clearly is a separate notion, a separate idea, can be Shisha or Shiva. And then the Mishnah talks about Halal and simcha, the libations, the pouring of wine, and so on and so forth. So how does this work out that it could be either six or seven days? And I'll tell you that has everything to do with the notion of Shabbat, because Shabbat supersedes or overwhelms the performance of many mitzvot, including the mitzvah of taking the four kinds. So if Shabbat falls on a day of Sukkot, invariably it will, we will not reach for the Alul of an Esrik. However, in today's day and age, it never happens that we shouldn't take the Arava because our sages ensured that the Arava would always be in hand. And they ensured that by taking extra special care to design our Jewish calendar in a way that ensures Hoshana Rabbah never falls on Shabbat. At any rate, the Mishnah goes on to say, Yom Tov Harishin Shalachog Shachol Lies B'Shabbos If Shabbat falls on the first day in the Beit HaMikdash, that is, Lulav Shiva, Lulav will be taken all of seven days. V'Sh'or Kol Yomim If Shabbat falls on the other days of the week, so then, Shisha. Arava Shiva Arava, taking the Arava seven days in a row, and I know what you're thinking, we don't take the Arava seven days in a row, and I'll explain that in a moment. So the Mishnah says, Yom Hashvi shall Arava. If the seventh day of Arava, Shecholius B'Shabbos falls out on Shabbat, so then Arava Shiva, because we take the Arava if the seventh day falls out. However, we do not take the Arava if any of the other days of Sukkot fall out on Shabbat. In other words, the seventh day of Sukkot has a special Arava focus. The first day of Sukkot has a special Lula focus. Now this is really interesting because we looked into the Torah, Leviticus 23. Together we read the verse that says, You must take for yourself the Lulav on the first day. And we did talk about the idea that there is an oral tradition that ordains that it's taken in the Beit HaMikdash all week long alluded to in the verse where it says you take the four kinds and then usmachtem, then you rejoice for seven days. So the verse begins with taking the lulav on the first day, but it concludes with rejoicing that is somehow lulav and etrog related for seven days. So the Mishnah is telling us that the first day is extremely important and in the Beit HaMikdash even if Shabbat were to fall on the first day, the lulav would nonetheless be taken. But if Shabbat falls on other days, and remember, in those days, the calendar was dynamic. So you couldn't design the calendar a certain way. 
And so it is also with the taking of Arava, we're being introduced to this notion, and I'm going to fill you in in the blanks. So there was a mitzvah in the Beit HaMikdash to cut these long willow branches, and the Kohanim would encircle the altar, the Mizbeach, each day holding these willow branches, crying out, Hoshana. So this was done every day of Sukkot in the Beit HaMikdash. On the seventh day, that's called Yom Shel Arava. Yom Hashvi Shel Arava, the seventh day of Arava. So in other words, we have this idea of a day of Arava. Now, the day of Arava is the seventh day of Sukkot. The holiday is not called Chag HaArava. So it turns out, or it seems to be, that the Mishnah is giving this name, is the origin of the name Yom HaArava. That's the first time we see this day singled out. This is the earliest documentation of it. In today's day and age, we reach for our lulav seven days of the week. Ah, you're right. Outside of the Beit HaMikdash, we do not take the lulav on Shabbat. So we actually have a rabbinic injunction introduced to us by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that we should hold the four kinds for seven days, take them for seven days the way they did in the Beit HaMikdash. But in fact, it'll only be six days because Shabbat is o- overrides and supersedes this rabbinic mitzvah of taking the lulav. Shabbat even overrides the mitzvah of taking the lulav on the first day, which is biblical even outside the Beit HaMikdash. In the Beit HaMikdash, there is an oral tradition, which we'll talk about soon, that you take the Arava. The Arava is taken in the Beit HaMikdash for seven days. Yet, we only reach for the Arava, we only hold an Arava, we only focus on an Arava, we only call it the day of Arava on the seventh day. Why is this? So the Gemara, a little bit later, on Daf Mem Dalet, on page 42, seems to suggest that that's because the mitzvah of Lulav is explicitly spelled out in the Torah, whereas the Arava isn't. Although there's the opinion of Abba Shaul who says it says Arve Nachal, plural, and because it says it plural, it alludes to two, the Lulav, the Arava on the Lulav, and the Arava that's taken separately in the Beit HaMikdash, we follow the ruling that it's Halachala Moshe Misinai, that this is an oral tradition. That's the opinion of the sages. I'll soon share with you the words of the Rambam. That's what we follow. It's an oral tradition that goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. In the Beit HaMikdash, the Arav is taken. And because it isn't spelled out openly in the Torah, the Gemara tells us, we don't reach for the Arava seven days or all week, rather only on the seventh day. At least that's the way Rashi explains it. According to the Ran, he explains it in, in the following fashion. He says, taking of the Lulav outside of Eretz Yisrael is something which is done as Zecher Mikdash as a memorial of the Beit HaMikdash. If we would take it on the first day, it wouldn't be a memorial to the Beit HaMikdash. It would be a fulfillment of a biblical mitzvah. There is no other particular day in which we should reach for our Lulav and Esrik. So in order to indicate that this is in lieu of what used to happen in the Beit HaMikdash, we take the Lulav and Esrik for seven days. However, when it comes to the Arava, the Ran says, outside of the Beit HaMikdash is no mitzvah to take an Arava. And therefore, it wasn't necessary to have an institution of Arava, an injunction of taking an Arava all seven days by emphasizing the seventh, the most important day in the Beit HaMikdash, 
we could have a memoriam of the Beis HaMikdash and fulfill this custom. So in summation, what I've introduced you to is the oldest source of Arava, the oldest documented source, and that's a Mishnah. The Mishnah indicates that the Arava was taken in the Beit HaMikdash alongside the Lulav. This was an activity performed by the Kohanim, not the entire crowd or nation. We do this in today's day and age to commemorate what happened in the Beit HaMikdash. In the same way we take the Lulav all week to commemorate what happened in the Beit HaMikdash, we, we reach for the Arava on the seventh day of Sukkot to commemorate the Arava of the Beit HaMikdash. And we see that the, the Mishnah calls it Yom Arava, the day of Arava. And the reason that the Mishnah calls it the day of Arava is because, well, the Arava was taken. Interestingly, there is a Teisvis, in Meseches Brachas, something similar that's found in the Siddur of, of Reb Sajigon as well. And there, the day is referred to clearly as Yom Arava. Not the seventh day of Arava, but straight up Yom Arava. The Gemara in Mesechet Brachot on page 34 talks about the notion of repeating one's prayers, which, by the way, isn't really appropriate. I know the Chazanic tradition of repeating a prayer again and again is something that's common, but was frowned on by many great tzaddikim, including the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who said the prayers are precise. But certain words are especially inappropriate to repeat. And the Gemara talks about the idea of reciting Shema. Shema, Shema. Listen, listen. The Gemara says that's really a bad idea. Because when you do so, it indicates you're accepting upon yourself a yoke of different dominions. That there's more than one dominion. Or more than one jurisdiction. But we the Jewish people don't accept that. We don't believe in a spirit, angel, force, or demon who is, if you will, operating a separate system outside of divinity. We believe that Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, God in His benevolent, benevolence and kindness, God in His judgmentalness, and even what appears to us to be harsh, is all the same God. Everything comes from God. What seems to us to be light comes from God. What seems to us to be darkness comes from God. That's the essence of the Shema. That's why, as the Gemara explains, we recite in our blessings, our preamble to Shema, Yotzer Or, Uvore Choshech. God forms photons. He also creates darkness. And darkness has many sinister connotations. All of that comes from God. And because there were many faith systems that introduced multiple dominions or different jurisdictions, we, the Jewish people, were careful about emphasizing the notion of one jurisdiction. The Teisva says that there are certain times when it's appropriate to say, Hashem hu ho'elokim. The words that Elijah uttered when he brought that unusual, very, very exceptional korban on Har HaKarmel, right outside the modern-day city of Haifa. He said, Hashem hu ho'elokim seven times. And the Teisva says that this is recited b'yom ha'kippurim, that's the climax of Yom Kippur, and it's also recited Vyom Arava, on the day of Arava. So the earliest sources identify this day as Arava Day. Not as Hoshana or Hoshana Rabbah, but Arava Day. The Mishnah seems to call it Shvi Shal Arava, seventh of Arava. And the Teisvis refers to it clearly 
is Yom Arava, indicating that the theme of this day is very much encapsulated by the Arava. Now, the earliest we see of its being referred to as Hoshana, or Hoshana Raba, is when we take a look in the Medrash. So let me share the words of the Medrash Rabbah with you, and then we'll go on to the Medrash Tilim. The Medrash Rabbah, in chapter 37 of Leviticus, actually talks about the notion of vows. I'm mentioning this because we will come back to vows soon. This is an important piece of the puzzle. But it talks about the idea of commitments, promising to be charitable, to share, and to care of one's, with one's wealth and affluence. And the Gemara, the Medrash says, talks about the importance of this. And then the Medrash relates a narrative. Chad zman b'yom hashana, once on the day of Hoshana, yahavalei, Intese Asara Pulsen. On that day, he gave 10 gold coins or 10 dinners. So, what's interesting here is number one, we see the name Hoshana, the oldest source, the Medrash Rabbah on Leviticus. And we see that that day of Yom Hoshana, the day of Hoshana, is related to the concept of tzedakah and fulfilling one's vows an important detail that we'll come back to in a moment. But continuing to focus on the name of this day, I want to take you now to a medrash that only came out in print in the 19th century from manuscript. A man named Shlomo Buber publishes the medrash Shochar Tov, as it was called, the medrash Tilim. And there, in the 17th verse, 17th psalm, this is the same Medrash Tillam I shared with you yesterday. In yesterday's class, this is a little bit earlier. The Medrash Tillam states, V'kevon shehigia yom hoshana Raba. That's the name we use. Once the day of hoshana Raba comes along, so the Medrash is talking about Sukkot and the various services and the special activities that were performed in the Beit HaMikdash during the holiday of Sukkot. We talk about the symbolism of the lulav. It represents victory. And then, it says when Hoshana Rabbah comes along, Notlin Arve Nachal, we take these willow brook branches, Umakifen Sheva Hakafot, and we make seven circuits, seven circles, in this big plant parade, holding these giant Arava branches. V'chazan HaKneset Omed the Chazan HaKneset is a euphemism that refers to the person who is either leading the congregation in prayer or somebody who is considered to be of a leadership position. So he stands like an angel, it says. The Sefer Torah Bezro'o and a Sefer Torah, the Torah scroll in hand, and the people surround him, Dugmat HaMezbeach, in the image or paradigm of the altar in the Beit HaMikdash. Shakain, for indeed, Shekach Shonu Rabbi Seinu, this is what our rabbis taught us. And here, the Medrash Tillam is quoting from the Mishnah and Braisa about Mesechet Sukkah. Bechol yoyim hoyom ha'kifin every day they would surround the Mizbeach, every day of Sukkot, that is, with these giant rubber branches. The Oymrim, and they would say, Ana Hashem, 
We beseech you, O God, Hoshiana, save us. Help us, bring us salvation. Ana Hashem Hatzlichana. And on the seventh day, they would go around seven times. And this is alluded to by King David in the book of Psalms, in which he wrote in the 26th Psalm, I rinse my hands in cleanliness and purity, and I encircle your altar, O God. So the Medrash Tillam is actually talking not about what happens in the Beis Hamikdash, but what we do what we do to emulate or to follow what used to happen in the Beit HaMikdash itself. This is really interesting. So in the Beit HaMikdash, Kohanim carry giant Arava branches. We will have the Arava branches in our hand, unlike the plant parade that was performed in the temple, we are circling the reading table. An important member of the community is going to be holding a Torah scroll. And that becomes, if you will, like the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach was the mechanism through which we were able to receive Hashem's blessing. We were able to download all kinds of needed energy and operating ability. And that's what happens at the reading table. When we read the Torah on Shabbatot and special days, we're able to draw inspiration, guidance, and a deep-seated sense of spiritual conviction and strength. So when we have at the reading table a human being who assumes the role of an angel holding a Torah scroll, it's appropriate for us to encircle the reading table in the way the Kohanim in antiquity would encircle the Mizbeach, the altar in the Beit HaMikdash. And clearly the Medrash Abba spells out the name. This is Yom Hoshana Rabbah. This is the oldest source that I was able to find for the modern-day assumption or modern-day name that we give the seventh day of Sukkot. What is it about, though? Why do we call it Hoshana Rabbah? Well, the Medrash seems to indicate it comes from the term Hoshana. Hoshana means save us. And because that was the prayer they would say when they were holding these giant Arava branches, and because they would do it seven times, and because we're holding Arava branches, and we're saying, Hoshana, which is really, if, if you will, the, 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 the general name for the prayers that are recited all of the days of Sukkot with our Lulav, but especially on the seventh day of Sukkot, we recite many Hoshanot in the image of the verbiage, the syntax of Psalms. So therefore, because we recite many Hoshanot, it makes sense that we should call it Hoshana. The Chai Adam, who is a contemporary of the Alter Rebbe, who wrote a halachic compilation as well, simply states, because we're, many, we're saying many added prayers, as the Shulchan Aruch says, that's what we call it, the day of Hoshanot. Hoshana means, help us please. Supplication. Many prayers, lots of supplication. It's a unique day of all the days of Sukkot. This is the day we pray most. We call it the day of Hoshana Rabbah, or great supplication. We'll... Take a look now, though, at the words of the Rokeach. The Rokeach is the 11th century star pupil of Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid. And Rabbi Eliezer Rokeach, literally the perfume maker, Rabbi Eliezer Rokeach has this phenomenal, fascinating commentary on the Siddur. And there, the Rokeach speaks about this day, which is called Hoshana Rabbah. 
And he suggests the following, and I'll read to you from what he writes. He says, On this day, This is the day in which God judges with regard to water or hydration. You heard that in the Shulchan Aruch. This is significantly earlier than the Shulchan Aruch, precedes it by centuries. But he adds something that the Shulchan Aruch does not allude to. And it seems to me that this is perhaps understood from the syntax of the Medrash, the Medrash Rabbah we mentioned a few moments ago. He says, the reason that this happens on that last day of Sukkot is Shabo over Bibal Ta'achar. A little bit of background here. If a person makes a vow to bring an offering to the Beit HaMikdash, that's generally referred to as neder o nedava. The neder being my personal obligation, I will, the nedava is, this object shall be given. Long before people made pledges to synagogues, yeshivot, kolalim, or other charitable organizations, people would make a pledge to the Beit HaMikdash. They would promise to bring an offering, or perhaps to support the physical edifice of our holy temple. So if you make such a vow or commitment, at what point would you violate balta achar, which means thou shalt not delay? Do you have to fulfill it within the hour, the day, the week, the month, the year? How long does this go for? So the rule is, that you have to do it within three holidays, by the end of the third holiday. And the reasoning is simple. Each of the Yamim Tovim, each of the Shalash Rogalim, the three festivals, which are called Regalim, also because there was this notion of being Ole Regal, walking to the Beit HaMikdash. A Jew was enjoined, in fact commanded, to visit Hashem's house thrice annually, on Pesach, on Shavuot, and on Sukkot. So if somebody makes a vow during the course of the year, at when, when will we say the third festival has arrived? Typically that would be Sukkot. It's a long winter, lots of time to make vows. You should have taken care of your vow on Pesach. But if you didn't, you still haven't violated the negative mitzvah of Baal Ta'achar. Don't tarry or delay. If you didn't take care of the promise or commitment by Shavuot, it's not good. You're leaving a positive mitzvah on the table, but you haven't violated a negative commandment. At what point would you really violate this? When Sukkot ends. Because Shemini Atzeret is considered to be a festival unto itself. So the last day of Sukkot is the last day when you can fulfill this vow. And if the Chag, if the Sukkot passes us by and you still haven't fulfilled it, it's not Shemini Atzeret, it's on the last day of Sukkot, the seventh day of Sukkot. The Rokeach says, And because of the sin of not keeping one's promises, not following through with commitments or vows made to Hashem, that's why the rainfall might not come in its appropriate time. Now, it's really important for me to tell you that the land of Israel very much depended upon heaven-sent precipitation. Israel doesn't have much of lakes 
or rivers. Yes, we have a Yam HaMelech, which is unique in the whole world, but it doesn't irrigate fields. We do have a Yarden River and some tributaries, but if you've been to Israel, it's not a very impressive river. It's certainly not a Mississippi or a Danube. It's not a Nile River. The Nile Delta irrigates the entirety of that east, northeastern corner of Africa. That's why in antiquity, it was Egypt that was always booming, even during times of economic bust elsewhere in the Middle East. Because when there was no rain, they were able to irrigate the fields and continue the economy by means of stimulating agriculture. Israel, Israel has a lake, it's called Kinneret, it's a great lake. So anything found anywhere in the world is gonna be found in Israel and that's part of its miraculous nature as the Gemara tells us in the end of Masechet Bava Basra. But the fact remains that the Kinneret very much depends on rainfall. And oftentimes when there isn't rain, the Kinneret evaporates quickly and sometimes it can sink very, very low. So how does the Israeli economy, which in antiquity was in the in our, uh, agriculturally driven economy, not computer science, we weren't the startup nation then, how does the country succeed? The answer is rain, precipitation. There is an entire mesechet, an entire tractate called Tanit, which is dedicated to what we do when it doesn't rain. And we believe that that's not a phenomenon of nature, stuff that just happens. We believe that's all by the hand of God. Of course, God could use nature, but the point is, it's all heaven-driven. And when things aren't right for us, we are told in Mesechet Tanit, and the Rambam talks about this in the outset of the laws of Tanit, we can't, as Torah Jews, say, well, stuff happens. Rambam calls it a cruel way to live. It means life has no meaning. Stuff happens. Instead, a person has to see everything that happens as the hand of Hashem. The Rokeach tells us precipitation would be withheld, which means our gashmiut, our material wealth, our affluence, our prosperity. The word gashmiut, which means materiality or material prosperity, comes from the Hebrew word geshem, which means rain. And because we wouldn't fulfill our vows, our promises to share the wealth that God gave us as we promised we would, we might lose those blessings. So precisely because therefore says God sits in judgment over the notion of precipitation of water. There was no day in which more offerings were brought, says the Rukeach. There weren't so many different types of offerings brought, like the day of Hoshana Rabbah. He says, They would literally tie the animals with bros of willow. As it says in the end of Psalm 118, which is a part of the Halal, Isruchag Ba'avoisim tying with cords. But he says that's a euphemism for willow bros. Va'imrim, we say, Dear God, Master of the universe, 
That which we vowed, we have brought. And the branches that we have, so to speak, bound or tied our obligation and, and their fulfillment are in our hands. Since we have not restrained from giving, please God, reciprocate. You too, please, don't restrain the rain. Don't hold it back. Neder tole beruach pinu. Vows have everything to do with the breath of our mouth. Yashev ruchay yizlumayim. God has his wind blow, and then rain arrives in plenty. So we made our vow. We did what you asked us to do. Asinu tzivitanu. And Kishem Shaharova Gedela Alamoyim, just like the willows grow up in the water. Remember, they're brook willows, not weeping willow trees. Kachten Lanumoyim. Please, dear God, give us the rainfall we need. Give us the water. Hydrate us. Ensure that we're successful, that we prosper, and that we're able to feed our families, our loved ones, and our nation. And Okeach says, We make a big day out of this. This is like the end of a period. The Omrim we say, Dear God, we say, Please save your nation. That's a quote from the book of Psalms. We find it in the 28th Psalm of verse 9. And it's by virtue of this notion, Korim Oto Hoshana Rabbah. That's why we call it Hoshana Rabbah. So it seems to me, and I'd like to humbly suggest that Rokeach is building on the Medrash Tilim. I'm assuming he saw some version of it, or one of the manuscripts. He's building on the idea talked about in the Vayikra Rabbah that links it to the concept of a neder or a vow or tzedakah. And I think Rokeach had his own sources. So this is one of the great Rishonim giving us an understanding of how and why this is a very important day. Now, it's, it's important, I think, for us to take a look at another great Rishon. Unlike the Rokeach, who lived in Eastern Europe or Germany, this is a Rishon who lives somewhat, somewhat later, I believe, or perhaps maybe in a similar time. And his name is Rabbeinu Bachaya. Rabbeinu Bachaya is a North African sage. And Rabbeinu Bachaya, one of the great Rishonim who comments on the Chumash, a disciple of Nachmanides, or at least followed his teachings, in his commentary on the last Torah portion called Vizot Habracha, Deuteronomy 33, he talks about the idea of greatness, great. And he talks about why we use the term Rabbah, which means great, and for, in, a, in a variety of ways in Torah literature. And he finishes off by saying, We call the seventh day of Arava. That's the Mishnah language. We call it Hoshana Rabba, the great Hoshana. Why? Listen to this. He says, 
Chavvav Yomim Shemi Briyat HaOlam. It completes the anniversary of 26 days from creation. Shenivra, because the world was created not on Rosh Hashanah, but on Chavhei Elul, on the 25th day of Elul. Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation, the day in which God created Adam and Eve and judged them. And so too, every year on Rosh Hashanah, God judges us. It's the day when the universe became meaningful because, because there was somebody who was gifted the intuition and ability to choose between right and wrong, Adam and Eve. That's the day we celebrate as Rosh Hashanah. That's the meaning of Zehayom Tchilat Masecha. This day is when all of your handiwork, the universe, proverbially speaking, is given meaning, has purpose to it. So, creation of the words Bereshit Bara Elokim is not on the first day of the Jewish New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, but rather five days prior, on the 25th day of Elul. Hoshana Rabbah is the 21st day of Tishrei. So if you make the count, from the 25th day of Elul to the 21st day of Tishrei, you have 26 days. And he says, because we're concluding 26 days, that's why it's called Rabbah. Now, Rabbeinu Bechai doesn't spell this out fully, but based on what he says earlier, it's pretty clear that he's referring to the great name of Hashem, the tetragram, known as Shem Havaya, or Yud Kevavke, and the numerical equivalent of Yud Kevavke is, you guessed it, 26. So Rabbeinu Bechai identifies this day as a great day of importance because 26 days have unfolded. Incidentally, there's a lot about the number 26 and God's benevolence and kindness. For example, we say, what's called Halal HaGadol, not the Halal, we refer to as Halal, but rather the Halal that's found in the end of the book of Psalms. And we recite it every Shabbat morning and it has 26 stanzas. And that corresponds to 26 generations that existed without the Torah. And that was a world sustained by divine benevolence. That's why we say, for his kindness is everlasting, or le'olam, for the world, chasto, it was Hashem's kindness. The whole purpose of creation was that the Torah should be given and actualized. So this notion of 26, insofar as creation is concerned, shows up in multiple places in Torah literature, and that's why Rabbeinu Bechaya says, the idea of reaching a point of judgment is actually on the 26th day from Bereshit Bara Elokim. And that's why it's not just called Yom Hoshana, but Hoshana Rabbah, connected to the great name of Hashem. Now, there are others who add a little bit, augment this and add a, a little bit further. There's this idea that the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yudke Vavke, is also connected to the notion of God's singularity. So the Mate Moshe says this. He says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God said to Abraham, Ani yachid yachid. One God, just one Abraham. Eten levincha, yom hamiyuchad, I will give your children a special day, l'chaper behem avonatem, in which they can seek absolution, atonement for their iniquity. I know what you're thinking. It must be Yom Kippur. 
Interestingly, the Mata Moshe says no. Vizehu Hoshana Rabba. And this is Hoshana Rabba. Why? Kishem Eke Aleph He which is the name that God used when he introduced himself to Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush, conveying to him that he was with his people, feeling their pain. In other words, God is always with us. Is bigamatria has the numeric equivalent of 21. Hoshana Rabbah is the 21st day of the new year. Avraham Yochid, the words Avraham, Abraham, the only, also has the notion of the gematria of 21. Sorry, no, no, no. Avram Yochid is, his singularity is that he is the 21st generation from Adam Harishan. And I think the gematria might work out too. And Hoshana Rabbah is 21 days into the month of Tishrei, or the new year. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Ein kapara levincha Rosh Hashanah. If there won't be atonement on Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment, well, they'll get atoned for on Yom Kippur. But if Yom Kippur doesn't work, and so the Mate Moshe indicates that this is the final chance. This is the last day in which we can seal the deal. This is the day in which any leftover issues can be dealt with. So we beseech heaven. We cry out to Hashem. And it's a day of great opportunity. And that's why it's called Hoshana Rabbah. What's not really clear to us is why we emphasize the Arava, the willow. I mean, it's one of the four kinds that's identified with Sukkot. There is an opinion in the Mishnah that they would not surround the Mizbeach with Aravot, but rather Marbiyotchel Dekel. They would take actually palm branches. Another faith system picked up on that. And they parade around with palm branches. But our, our plant parade is not, is not with palm branches, but rather with our avot. Although we do parade around the mizbeach, or the, the reading table in our day, with our lulav and etrog, the big hoshana is in our rama. And this remains somewhat unanswered. Why do we make such a big deal? I, we, have, we have come to an appreciation of how this day represents tremendous importance. How this day is, if you will, a final opportunity. A day of judgment and a day of atonement. Having elements of Rosh Hashanah attached to it, as well as elements of Yom Kippur. And a last chance. A time to seal the deal. But why is it that we focus on the Arava. After all, as per the Medrash Rabbah in Leviticus that I shared with you a few days ago, the four kinds are reminiscent of four different lifestyles. The identifying marks of these four different kinds are fragrance and taste. The etrog is both fragrant and tasty. The myrtle is fragrant but its berries are bitter. The date is tasty, but there's no fragrance to speak of. And the arava, it's got none. None of the above. Neither fragrance nor taste. Fragrance, we learned, represents the notion of mitzvah involvement. Taste, 
we explained, represents the notion of intellectual rhyme and reason, or Torah knowledge. So the etrog excels both at Torah knowledge as well as mitzvah observance. The lulav excels in the area, the arena of scholastics. He's a phenomenal Torah learner. The myrtle represents the person who's an activist and dedicates their lives to mitzvah engagement and observance and fulfillment. But the arava, oy vey, the has got none of the above. And why on this day in which Hashem is judging us, why on this day in which we're having a final chance to seal the deal, why on this day that has elements of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur attached to it, a day that represents God's great name, the, the conclusion, the climax from creation itself, as in the 26th day, or the notion of Hashem Yochid and Avram Yochid, the idea that we are the children of the first Jew and that singularity, essentially represents us before Hashem for the good. And not only do we take the Arava, not only was this called Yom Arava, but as we started in the outset of this presentation, we, we whacked a willow trying to sweeten judgment. What's going on here? So I want to share with you the contents of an amazing edited talk of the Rebbe. This is found in Lakuta Sichas in the 29th volume. It's a sicha, an editor talk on Hoshana Rabbah. And I, I'm going to share just the gist of it with you because, because I believe that it's inspirational and uplifting, but I believe that it will also shed tremendous clarity as to why this day has such a seeming obsessive focus on the willows and perhaps even what we're trying to accomplish when we whack those willows and how it serves to sweeten judgment. Let's first take a look at the Rambam that we mentioned earlier. The Rambam in Hilchus Luluf, in the seventh chapter, makes the following statement. He says, The Rambam says, it is something that was passed from Moses at Sinai, in oral tradition. Clearly, we can understand that the Rambam rules not like Abashol, that we don't derive this from an asmachta, from a, but, or buttress it with a verse in the Torah saying, Ar nachal, but as the Gemara there on page 44 documents, we believe that this is an oral tradition. Rambam seems to follow that halachically. It's an oral tradition, that at the base of Migdash, of all the four kinds, there wasn't extra lulavim, there wasn't extra etrogim or myrtles, but there was another willow. This is outside of the Arava on the Luluf. Rambam says, You could say, well, why do we need to have another Arava? I'm already holding an Arava. I'm holding an Arava together with myrtle, with palm, and citron. No good, Rambam says. It has to be a separate Arava, a willow unto itself. The Rebbe says, clearly, there seems to be something other going on here. This is not simply a detail of the four kinds. This is a special mitzvah, a special idea, a special notion that was conveyed to us orally from Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai. And it's about the willow. And the minhag 
the custom that's been passed down to us is that although in the Beit HaMikdash they would take these willow bros and they would have it lean over the altar, that we actually whack the willow. And we whack it five times. It's about sweetening judgment. What's going on here? So the Rebbe says that we could explain this through the prism of illuminated Hasidic teaching. Specifically the teachings of Chabad Hasidus. The Friedrich Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, our Rebbe's father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe of Lubavitch, once said, the Arava, the willow, represents the simple Jew. The simple Jew whose fulfillment of mitzvot is an embodiment and an expression of simple faith. Now, when you read or study that medrash, you say, the myrtle is doing mitzvot, the lulav is studying Torah, the sitra and the etrog is doing both, the willow is doing nothing. That's the simple way to understand the medrash. The Rebbe, who highlights every single word that his Rebbe said, taught us that the Friedrich Rebbe was actually reading the medrash in a different fashion. He understood something different from this medrash. If you will, the novel, fresh new approach, shining the bright light of Hasidus on this medrash, he said the medrash is telling us, as the Friedrich Rebbe saw it, that all of these are performing mitzvot. They're all studying Torah. Why celebrate non-observance? Why pat non-observance on the back? <laughs> Why do we make a, a whole spectacle, a plant parade, out of the Jew who was unlettered and unobservant? It actually doesn't make any sense. But the Friedrich Rebbe was saying that the intention of the Medrash is that all these people are doing what Hashem wants. They're all doing mitzvahs. You know, parenthetically, there's that famous Gemara that says that every member of Am Yisrael is filled with mitzvahs. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says like a rimon, like a pomegranate that's packed with seeds. Everybody's doing mitzvahs, he says. When the Medrash talks of us about the lulav, and the Medrash talks about the virtue of Torah, what the Medrash is really saying is, here's a person whose observance of Yiddishkeit is flavored through his understanding of the mitzvahs. This is a person who affiliates with mitzvahs, understands mitzvahs cerebrally. This is a scholastic star, a person who identifies with, and all of his Yiddishkeit is filtered through the prism of rhyme and reason. His diffusion of his neshama light comes to the Torah that this individual understands. That's the kind of observance. That's what you see when you look at their Yiddishkeit. They embody education, literacy, and understanding. And then you have a person who is like a, a myrtle. They strongly identify with mitzvot. They take tremendous pride 
They feel so good about the mitzvah. They relate to mitzvahs as emotional touchstones. They, the, the mitzvah for them is an embodiment of their emotional accordions, not their intellectual accordions. It isn't so much what they understand. It isn't emphasizing, per se, the notion of the way they apprehend the concepts of Yiddishkeit, but the way they relate to Yiddishkeit. These are heartfelt people. These are people who observe their Yiddishkeit with tremendous fervor, with a sense of deep emotional involvement and engagement. It's a wonderful fragrance. You have the etrog. And the etrog represents a Jew who is not only passionately involved in his or her Yiddishkeit, but a person whose Yiddishkeit is also well-informed and is cradled with a tremendous, vast understanding, a profound intellectual appreciation. That's a super Jew. Understands and feels. And then there's the willow. And the willow Jew doesn't really understand. He can't seem to wrap his head around it. He's not relating intellectually. The willow Jew doesn't necessarily find a personal sense of joy or satisfaction in the mitzvahs of Yiddishkeit. He doesn't affiliate or identify with it emotionally. What motivates that person's observance? What motivates that person's commitment? What motivates, what drives that person's involvement in Yiddishkeit? And the Friedrich Rebbe said, Emunapshuta, simple faith. Simple faith. Artless, unsophisticated, salt of the earth. Simple faith. This is a person who doesn't get excited, doesn't necessarily understand or relate, but remains very dedicated. You know, like the Balshemtivs, proverbial simple Jew. That's the willow. And in saying this, the Friedrich Rebbe was emphasizing the virtue of anoshim pshutim, what we call in Yiddish, pushetayidin, those simple Jews that the Baal have loved so much. These people who don't have the towering virtues of scholastic achievement, intellectual excellence, profound emotional quotients, engagement or involvement. No, 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 no. Just, just plain, simple faith. And that's the way they do their, their mitzvot. That's the way they commit themselves to Yiddishkeit. So when the Gemara calls the last day of Sukkot Yom Ha'arava, and as Rambam clearly draws a distinction between the Arava taken on its own and the Arava that's included in the garland of myrtle, palm, and citron, we're talking here about the simplicity of that faith being feted or appreciated as is, not being colored by the milieu of its environment. You see, the, the simple Jew, when 
they're engaged with others who are profound, deep, scholastically inspired. They're, they're ultimately buoyed by what's going on around them. They're affected by that atmosphere. I guess you could say it kind of rubs off on them a little bit. They, they, they start to appreciate or even understand a little bit more. In a strange way, that sophistication subtracts from the sublime simplicity of pure, simple faith. My dear friends, the Arava of the last day of Sukkot is a celebration of that simple, artless, and endless faith. Not as it's colored, not as it's augmented, not as it's flavored, not as it's enhanced by the milieu of dazzling colors that ultimately can serve to sometimes darken or at least inhibit and minimize the bright shining light of simple faith. The pshitas, the simplicity of the neshama. You know, the Rebbe says with this we can answer a famous question that Teisvis asks on the Gemara that I shared with you on the outset of this class that today when we have a calendar that's designed, we ensure that we never lose Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah never falls on Shabbat. So this year, Tavshim Pei Aleph, year of Ployus Arenu, we didn't hear the shofar on the first day of Rosh Hashanah with Shabbat. We didn't take the lulav of Etrogim, the Etrog Adasman Aravot, because it was Shabbat. But we will do Hoshana Rabbah because that falls on Friday. And the Teisva says, what? We're more concerned with whacking a willow, but a custom, and comfortable with overriding biblical mitzvot of enormous importance. But what's going on here? And what's the answer? The answer is, Chachamim asu chizuk yoter mishal Torah. The sages had to strengthen the customs that they had initiated even more so than mitzvot in the Torah because the mitzvot in the Torah will always be revered. But unfortunately, our history including our present time, is filled with people who mock, laugh, or denigrate the words of our sages. That's what requires the greatest protection. On a literal level, of course, that's true. That's what our rabbis explained and told us. But the Rebbe says, from a mystical, spiritual, Hasidic perspective, what's really going on here is the importance of emunah being emphasized. And that simple faith is something that oftentimes the profundity of the mind and heart can sometimes serve to cloud or sometimes serve to, you know, cover, conceal, and obscure that simple faith. And our sages understood that that simple faith is ultimately the foundation of it all. As Alta Rebbe says in Tanya, in the end, when a person is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. It's not the sum total of their understanding, rhyme or reason. Because the survival instinct is stronger than whatever we might understand. It's not the sum total of our emotions, our fervor and our passion. Because the feeling of wanting to stay alive can be more powerful than any kind of cause we might commit ourselves to. Dr. Rebbe says that Mesiras Nefesh 
making the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate commitment hails from the deepest, profoundest, and simplest essence of the neshama. It's that essence of the neshama that we bring forth, that we celebrate and actualize on Hoshana Rabbah. And I don't know if this is correct, but I'm just going to venture to say this. Sometimes you have to really shake it up. Our custom isn't to wave the arava, to whack it. Some have a custom of waving and then whacking. We just whack that arava because, you know, when you, you whack it, that's how the deepest essence comes out. It's like the olives that you squeeze or crush in order to get the oil from. We whack the arava. We seek to see, sweeten judgment. Because in the end, the deepest connection we have with Hashem is not the sum total of our hearts or minds. These are external virtues. We are banamatim Hashem alikeichem. We are Hashem's special children. A child is a child not because they can engage you in intelligent conversation or because you have a loving or meaningful relationship with them. A child is a child because a child is a child. Because you can't do away with that connection. We are Hashem's children. Avraham was yachid. Hashem loved Avraham because he was Avraham. Hashem loves us. He loves us because we are his special children. Perhaps that's the essence of whacking the willow. It's clear from the Rebbe's teaching, as he explains the Friedrich Rebbe's teachings, that the willow represents that simple faith. And maybe, just maybe, whacking that willow to sweeten the five judgments enables us to bear and to express the deepest part of who we really are. And with that, with that, judgment ends. With that, harshness is over. And with that, together, unified as one nation, we can make a circle around the bima and dance and rejoice on Shemini Atzeret and Simchas Torah. Because that completes the circle. May Hashem help us that this Hoshana Rabbah, we should, we should be able not only to shake or whack the willows, but we should be able to shake ourselves and bring forth the appreciation for the deepest essence of who we are, revealing our emunah pshuta, our simple faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that there should be a sweetening of all judgments and an end to all negativity, difficulty, disruption, and challenge, and that together, we be able to celebrate Simchas Torah, completing the circle, Emir Hashem, in the third Beis Hamikdash, led by none other than Mashiach himself, who will teach Torah to the simplest Jews, as it says in Hayom Yom, Bemheira Obi Amenu, speedily, and in our days, Amen.